Can you guess which Benjamin Britten opera was composed for the celebration of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II? Stay tuned and find out more on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Benjamin Britten's Gloriana premiered in 1953 at the Royal Opera House for the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. Better known for famous works such as Peter Grimes, Turn of the Screw, and A Midsummer's Night Dream, Benjamin Britten drastically modernized opera in England, evolving it to become incredibly important in the operatic canon. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, lecturer Dr. Naomi Purley will explore why the works of Benjamin Britten have such tremendous popularity. Welcome to part two in our series of podcasts devoted to opera in England. Today, we will be jumping forward from the mid-19th century to the mid-20th century and focusing on the work of one composer who single-handedly revived a largely moribund English opera tradition, Benjamin Britten. Britten was born in 1913, exactly one century after the two opera greats of the 19th century, Wagner and Verdi. He was born and raised in the town of Lowestoft, on the Suffolk coast of England. If you can picture the shape of England as a sorcerer's hat, slightly askew, Lowestoft sits on the right-hand edge of the brim. It is the easternmost town on England's coast. Britain spent most of his life in this part of England, eventually settling in the nearby town of Alderborough, and the region had a profound impact on his artistic development. He, too, had an outsized effect on the region. He created a music festival in the town of Alderborough, which continues to this day, and after he died, his house became a museum and archive dedicated to preserving his legacy. Britain came of age in the shadow of the late 19th and early 20th century giants of British music, Edward Elgar, Gustav Holst, and Rafe von Williams. He inherited from them a revitalized tradition of distinctively English symphonic music, saturated with references to folk tunes and military marches. Elgar, Holst, and von Williams were all active at the height of Britain's colonial power, and their music reflects a certain pride and confidence in the British Empire. These features are exemplified in Elgar's most famous work, Pomp and Circumstance, March No. 1 in D, which to this day remains ubiquitous at graduations. Here is the March's trio performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, with Barry Tuckwell conducting.
Britain's own attitude toward the British Empire and the legacy of the great English composers who had preceded him was decidedly ambivalent. His musical style also relied in part on English folk idioms, but he forged his own individual sound by incorporating many other influences into his aesthetic. We can trace in Britain's music influences from the leading figures of the early 20th century, including Mahler, Berg, and Shostakovich, as well as diverse musical traditions from around the world, such as the sound of the Javanese gamelan. Britain also distinguished himself by concentrating his efforts on opera, a genre in which success had eluded the earlier generation of English composers. Britain composed nine operas in total over the course of his life, and he conducted the premieres of many of them at the Aldeborough Music Festival. He was so successful during his own lifetime that he became the first composer awarded a life peerage by the Queen. Britain began to forge both his personal and musical identities in the 1930s when he found work composing scores for government-sponsored films. In this line of work, he fell in with a left-leaning crowd of pacifists who shaped his own political views and also encouraged him to explore his sexuality. In 1937, Britain met the tenor Peter Piers, who would become his lifelong romantic and artistic partner. Britain established his identity as a pacifist as the threat of war with Germany grew ever larger throughout the 1930s. When war was finally declared in 1939, Britain and Piers fled to America to avoid military service. Their three-year stay proved decisive in Britain's musical development. In fact, it was at the very moment that Britain and Piers were making moves to establish permanent residence in the United States that Britain encountered an essay that would spur them to return to England and inspired Britain to compose his first large-scale opera, Peter Grimes. During the summer of 1941, Britain and Piers traveled to California so that they could briefly cross the border to Mexico and then re-enter the United States to qualify for permanent residence. But during the trip, Britain came across an essay by the novelist E.M. Forster about George Crabb, a poet from the same region as Britain, who captured the essence of 19th century life on the Suffolk coast in his grimly realistic works. After Piers bought a volume of Crabbe's poetry, the two became convinced that regardless of the consequences they may face as conscientious objectors, their hearts and their lives remained in England. By the time that Piers and Britain returned to England in 1942, the two had already begun to sketch a scenario for an opera based on one of Crabbe's poems, The Burrow. Crabbe's poem concerns the fate of an Aldeborough fisherman named Peter Grimes, whose cruelty to a series of apprentices leads to his ostracization from society. Britain and Piers saw in the character of Grimes the potential for a sympathetic figure, an outsider whose cruelty is enabled by a society that provides no legal protections for the orphaned boys Grimes hires as his apprentices. And yet, Grimes is shunned by that same society over suspicion that he may have murdered his apprentices. In Britain's setting of the opera, with a libretto by Montague Slater, 
Grimes becomes a sympathetic anti-hero in the mold of Berg's Wozzeck, or Shostakovich's Lady Macbeth of Mitensk. As the consummate outsider of the borough's rigid social order, Grimes also becomes an allegory for Britain's own outsider position as both a pacifist and conscientious objector during the Second World War and a closeted gay man in mid-century Britain. Let's listen to an excerpt from Act 1, Scene 2 of Peter Grimes. In this scene, all the residents of Aldeborough are gathered in the pub, seemingly the hardiest building in town, to wait out a particularly brutal coastal storm. As tensions rise among the residents, they begin to sing a round that has a bit of the character of a traditional sea chanty, called Old Joe Has Gone Fishing. But this being Britain, the round is a little more complicated than it may sound on the surface. It has the unusual time signature of 7-4, and this irregular meter propels the music forward, gathering more and more force as the residents of Aldeborough all join in. But when Peter Grimes tries to join the round, he nearly breaks it apart. He can't remember the words, and he can't keep up with the inexorable pace. This 1958 Royal Opera House recording, conducted by Britain, features Peter Pears singing the role of Peter Grimes, which, like nearly all of Britain's tenor roles, was created expressly for Pears.
Grimes premiered at the Sadler's Wells Theatre in 1945 as the company's first performance following their hiatus during the Second World War. It was an immediate success, launching Britain's career as an opera composer while simultaneously catapulting English opera onto the world stage for the first time in centuries. Following the success of Peter Grimes, Britain composed five more operas over the next decade. The Rape of Lucretia, Albert Herring, Billy Budd, Gloriana, and The Turn of the Screw. Let's turn our attention now to an opera that couldn't be any more different from Peter Grimes, Britain's first comic opera, Albert Herring. In place of Grimes's large orchestra and chorus, Albert Herring features a strong ensemble cast, a chamber orchestra of 12 players, and no chorus. What unites the operas, and indeed so many of Britain's works across the span of his career, is the setting, another small town in Suffolk, in this case the town of Luxford in East Suffolk. They share a second trait that also runs through many of Britain's works, a main character who doesn't fit into his surroundings at all. But Albert is a completely different kind of misfit than Grimes. He is initially regarded by the town as a paragon of virtue, admired by the whole town, but deeply uncomfortable in his own skin. Eric Crozier adapted the libretto for Albert Herring from Guy de Maupassant's short story, Le Rosier de Madame Housson, which was originally set in Normandy. But the story translates all too well to English village life around the turn of the 20th century. The town dignitaries have gathered to choose their annual May Queen, but Lady Billows finds that none of the local girls live up to her moral standards. The police superintendent suggests that they choose a May King instead, and he nominates Albert Herring. Although Albert lives up to Lady Billows' moral standards, he is perhaps not the best choice for the role of May King. He has lived his life in the shadow of his overbearing mother, and he is painfully shy. On the day of the May King ceremony, as the townsfolk set up for the banquet, Albert's friends Sid and Nancy decide to have some fun at his expense by spiking his glass of lemonade with rum. The scene provides a perfect occasion for Britain to enact a musical parody to accompany the comedy on stage. As Sid pours the rum into Albert's lemonade, the piano strikes a Tristan chord, and the violin begins to play the opening melody of Wagner's Tristan und Isolde. When you begin cleaning the glasses so long, while I add a drop to his majesty's cup. Don't give him too much. He mustn't get tight. Just loosen him up and make him feel right. I think that's all right. Now add lemonade. It's much the same shade. No one can smell there's rum in as well, excepting for Albert. And he'll never tell. That clip was from the 1963 recording conducted by Britain with the English Chamber Orchestra.
Joseph Ward was singing the role of Sid, and Nancy was performed by Catherine Wilson. Here's a reminder of how Tristan und Isolde begins from the Berliner Philharmoniker's 1995 recording with Daniel Berenboim conducting. The bits of Tristan that Britain parodies in Albert Herring are associated in their original context with the love potion that Isolde's maid, Brangene, gives to Tristan and Isolde instead of the death potion that Isolde had ordered Brangene to provide. The swap taking place in Albert Herring is comically trivial by comparison, though it winds up having an outsized impact on the residents of Luxford. Like most good parodies, Britain's reference to Tristan und Isolde effectively neuters the music's original emotional power. In place of the lush low strings, horns, and woodwinds that open Wagner's music drama, the Tristan chord is strummed almost carelessly on the piano, and a single violin meanders along the melody's chromatic scale and loses its way almost immediately. Britain revives the musical joke a little later on in this scene, when Albert finally takes a fateful swig from his glass of spiked lemonade. The town dignitaries make a series of speeches honoring Albert, and then Albert is expected to make his own speech of thanks to kick off the banquet. Britain perfectly captures the ease with which the other characters make their own speeches, and the difficulty that Albert has once it's his turn. This next excerpt begins with the police superintendent's speech, accompanied by a lively bassline with regular sharp interjections by the winds. When Albert is called upon to give thanks in return, the mood shifts completely. 
the superintendent's bright accompaniment gives way to a dark, dissonant polyphony in the strings, punctuated by bells that further heighten the tension, as Albert struggles to speak. After he manages to squeak out a word or two of thanks, the other attendees take over, leading to a rousing three cheers for Albert. The third hip-hip hooray, when Albert finally takes a drink of his spiked lemonade, lands quite unexpectedly on a Tristan chord, and is followed immediately by a return of the upward chromatic scale. The piano interjects short, broken Tristan chords throughout the ensuing farce as Albert's spiked lemonade gives him hiccups and the assembled guests rush to assist him. This clip features Owen Branigan as the police superintendent and Peter Pierce as Albert, as well as several moments that allow the whole ensemble to sparkle. very much. Everyone, I'm joining you. 
Albert drinks the spiked lemonade, the alcohol goes straight to his head, and he decides to finally rebel against all the external strictures that have governed his life up until this point. He sets off from the town in search of some excitement. When Albert fails to return the next morning, and his making crown is found crushed by the side of the road, the town jumps to the dreadful conclusion that Albert has died and begins to sing a threnody. But at the height of the threnody, Albert returns and asks what all the fuss is about, leading everyone to turn on him and berate him. The threnody displays Britain's brilliant ensemble writing, which is really at the heart of this opera. We'll listen now to the threnody, followed by Albert's intrusion on the scene of mourning. Scorns to die. 
Let's turn our attention now to the last opera that Britain composed in that extremely fruitful first decade of operas, The Turn of the Screw, which premiered in 1954. Although The Turn of the Screw and Albert Herring are both chamber operas composed for a small cast and chamber orchestra, they are at nearly opposite emotional poles. The Turn of the Screw is based on Henry James's ghost story of the same name. The story revolves around a governess who is hired to care for two children who live in a country house called Bly. Their only adult relation is an absentee guardian who instructs the new governess that she should not contact him under any circumstances once she arrives at Bly. It doesn't take long for the governess to sense that something is amiss at Bly. She sees mysterious figures around the grounds and, with the help of the housekeeper, figures out that they are the ghosts of Miss Jessel and Peter Quint, the former governess and manservant. The governess gradually realizes that Miss Jessel and Peter Quint have corrupted the children and still hold sway over them. In several of the opera's scenes, Britain masterfully portrays the children's dual nature, sweet and playful one moment, then seemingly possessed by evil forces the next. In scene six of act one, such a change occurs during Miles' Latin lesson. The scene begins with Miles and Flora exuberantly reciting a list of Latin nouns. But when the governess asks Miles what else he remembers, the mood suddenly shifts. Miles sings a haunting song derived from a mnemonic meant to help students distinguish the verb malo, I would rather, from the noun malus, apple tree, the adjective malus, meaning naughty, and the noun malum, adversity. One of the turn of the screw's most unusual features is its casting of Miles as a treble, requiring a young male singer to take on a role that is much more substantial than most operatic roles for children. 
His sister, Flora, is often performed by a woman rather than a girl, but the vocal range of Miles' part demands a boy. This 1954 recording with the original cast, conducted by Britton, features a 13-year-old David Hemmings in the role of Miles, Olive Dyer as Flora, and Jenner Vivian as the governess.
The Malo song returns tragically in the opera's final scene. The governess has sent Flora and the housekeeper to the children's guardian, and she remains alone with Miles at Bly. The governess suspects that Miles has taken the letter that she wrote to the guardian, warning him of the evil goings-on in the house. When she asks him about it, Miles resolves to tell her what happened, but Peter Quint appears and demands Miles' silence. Urged on by the governess, Miles finally repudiates Peter Quint. But as Peter disappears, Miles dies. The opera ends with the governess singing the Malo song as a lament for Miles. Peter Pierce, of course, sings the role of Peter Quint in this recording.
Let's round things out on a slightly less haunted note with an excerpt from Britain's A Midsummer Night's Dream, which premiered at the Aldeburgh Festival in 1960. While the work belongs to a long lineage of operatic Shakespeare settings, it became the most successful Shakespearean opera by a composer who shared Shakespeare's nationality. Britain's comedic sensibilities and his superb ability to conjure up magical settings out of the simplest musical materials finds the perfect outlet in Shakespeare's tale of fairies, magic, and mischief. The opening of A Midsummer Night's Dream is a case in point. The orchestra evokes the mysterious and magical setting in the woods at night by cycling through all 12 major triads, each connected by glissandi in the strings. The fairies then appear in the wood and sing their first song, Over Hill, Over Dale. At the very end of this clip, Puck enters with his famous line, How now, spirits? This 1966 recording, conducted by Britain, features the London Symphony Orchestra and the choirs of Downside School, Purley, and Emmanuel School, Wandsworth.
brings us to the end of our brief survey through Britain's operas. I hope this little tour through England via the works of this singular composer has given you a sense of the depth and breadth of Britain's compositional style, ranging from large-scale operas that marshal full orchestral and choral forces to intimate chamber operas that explore the complexities of English life as Britain himself experienced it. That was lecturer Dr. Naomi Purley discussing Benjamin Britten and concluding our two-part series on opera in England. Make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, the Metropolitan Opera, and Opera News to keep up with all things opera on your favorite social media platform. I'm Stuart Holt, and thanks so much for listening.